0: Welcome to episode seventy-seven of Primary Care Update. I'm Mark A. Bell, a family physician and professor at the University of Georgia, and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus.
1: I'm Kate Rowland, a family physician and associate professor at Rush University.
2: I'm John Hickner, family physician and editor-in-chief of the Journal of Family Practice.
3: Hi, I'm Henry Barry, a family physician and one of the co-founders of InfoPoems. A few episodes ago, we made passing mention of Banting and Best's discovery of insulin. And I just learned that on April 15th, Canada issued a stamp commemorating the 100th anniversary of their discovery. So as a philatelist, it's obviously one that I'm going to try to get.
0: Excellent. Yes. And thank you for the stamps you sent me uh, last year, Henry. I appreciate that. So in this podcast, we highlight patient-oriented evidence that matters or poems. If you want all of the poems, subscribe to Essential Evidence, where you get a poem every day, plus a great primary care reference with over 800 chapters and thousands of interactive decision support tools. Check it out at EssentialEvidencePlus.com. The opinions expressed on Primary Care Update are those of the commentators, and this podcast doesn't represent medical advice or the endorsement of any product. If you have medical questions, see your family physician. For a nominal annual fee, you can also get CME credit from the Illinois Academy of Family Physicians for listening to this podcast and any others from 2021. Just go to iafp.com, click on the online IAFP education webpage, and find our podcast. This week, we're going to discuss a proven strategy to decrease antibiotic prescribing, I should say unwarranted or unnecessary antibiotic prescribing, updated recommendations for blood pressure screening, vitamin D and fish oil for preventing AFib, and steroids for wheezy kids. So I'm going to start off with a study that was published in Pediatrics. Uh, Mastalmu is a Spanish uh, group of researchers, Delayed P- Antibiotic Prescription for Kids with Respiratory Infections, a Randomized Trial. So they asked the question of, do delayed prescriptions safely reduce antibiotic use in kids with respiratory infections? And these were Spanish investigators. They enrolled 436 kids from 39 primary care centers. The kids were between ages 2 and 14 years, and they all had been diagnosed with either a throat, a sinus, a lung, or an ear infection, for which the pediatrician had reasonable doubts about the need to prescribe an antibiotic. Rapid strep tests weren't available, Uh, For the kids included in this study, Uh, they were randomized to no antibiotic treatment, a prescription for an antibiotic to be started immediately, or a delayed prescription. The delayed script was only to be started if the patient had a fever or felt much worse after 24 hours, or if the kid didn't start to feel slightly better after a defined interval. And that interval was given to the parents based on information about prognosis and natural history. All parents were told it was normal for a child to feel slightly worse in the first days after the visit. Then they were told how long to expect the infection to last, for example, 20 days for acute bronchitis. Almost all of the kids in the immediate antibiotic group got antibiotics. Not surprising. Only 25%, though, in the delayed group and 12% in the no antibiotic group got an antibiotic. Symptoms took an average of eight days to disappear overall. Uh, It was the same between treatment groups. The number of days with severe symptoms was also the same. More kids in the non-antibiotic group were given other symptomatic treatments. Parents felt the need to do something for their kids. Um, Complications, though, unscheduled visits were similar between groups. Satisfaction was similar between groups. The only difference, GI symptoms were higher in those who got antibiotics, um, uh, who were given antibiotics. So bottom line, the combination of, and I think this is important, education about the natural history combined with a take and hold prescription resulted in less than one in four of those kids eventually getting an antibiotic. And this is consistent with uh, other studies that have been done in adults. John, what do you think?
2: This is great. As you said, it confirms other studies, but the additional twist on this study is that they used a no antibiotic group as well. And that really performed the best because only 12% of those kids got an antibiotic. And as you say, the outcomes were all similar. So I think that gives us some really good guidelines for acute respiratory infections in kids. If you're on the fence. I would start out by just saying, no, there's no necessity, and and doing some education. If the parent's hesitant, then you could go to a delayed uh, prescription for an antibiotic. So uh, this this is good data that will help us move forward with decreasing unnecessary antibiotic use.
0: Kate, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I think this is one where I would... uh... Obviously, it's old news at this point. We know that this is an effective way of decreasing antibiotic use. I think I would also be really interested to see some some more real-world evidence, not, not just in the study setting, but what happens when we try this in actual practice to see, and in the U.S., where our expectations are maybe a little bit different of primary care than they are um, in a in a setting with universal healthcare, like in Spain, um, but to see if we, when we do this, how many people actually pick up those prescriptions and then how many report actually taking a dose to see if we get numbers that are quite this good. Um, or if people, you know, leave the office and they basically think, nah, if he said, you know, that doc said it, it's a good idea to, to think about it, then maybe I'm just going to go ahead and start right now.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. It, the, the issue of generalizability to the U.S. is an important one. Um, And, you know, it's going to be hard to study this in the US. I was at a meeting convened by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality on antibiotic overuse. And the consensus in the room was delayed prescriptions are a terrible idea because they're a terrible idea. And I I kept Trying to argue, they work. <laughs> they work better than anything y'all have tried in this room. They work better than education. They work better than audit and feedback. They work better than anything you geniuses have come up with. And yet, <laughs> it's a bad idea. So, <laughs> I, I was um, frustrating, and it was clear that they weren't going to fund that kind of a study, or at least it would seem unlikely to fund that kind of a study um, in the US. So, but hopefully, we can figure out a way to do that. Anyway, um, thanks, you guys. Henry, uh, and, and you got anything that throw in there? I didn't know.
3: Yeah, I'm just relieved to hear that overprescribing of antibiotics is A, not unique to Americans, and B, that other countries have struggles with this. And I just remember our colleague and friend, Rick Bucata used to describe this phenomenon as analogous to feeding the bears, that we created very simply a habit, if you will. um, And it takes a lot of effort to break this habit.
0: Just let's not start shooting the bears, okay? <laughs> John, you got a quiz. Here it is. Which, are
2: the follow, which of the following treatments are effective for chronic low back pain? One, exercise. Two, massage. Three, yoga. Four, acupuncture. Five, spinal manipulation. And stay
0: tuned for the answer. Kate, what do you got to update us with?
1: So, I'm going to talk about a a brand. This is another from the category of interesting things that I read recently. Uh, It's a new USPSTF recommendation. I always feel like a little bit of a pretender talking about the USPSTF in front of you, the mark. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So, they issued... (laughs) uh, Feel free to jump in at any time. Uh, So, the USPSTF issued two recommendations in April. One is on hypertension that I initially dismissed as old news, um, but we're not quite doing it yet. So we're going to talk about it. Uh, the other on vitamin D that I'm actually interested, uh, very excited to get into. We'll talk about that another time, um, unless John takes that one first, because I know that vitamin D is, is always of hot interest to John. Um, so this hypertension recommendation, like I said, is, is a little bit more interesting than it, it seemed on the surface. They are suggesting that we screen adults for hypertension, which is not, again, breaking news. But uh, finding and treating hypertension reduces the risk of stroke, heart disease. This is, again, this is not uh, low-hanging fruit in the medical world. So what is interesting is the question of how we screen for hypertension. Um, The the previous update, which was in 2015, recommended confirming any abnormal office blood pressure readings with readings done outside of the office. And the the two main options were either 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitoring or home blood pressure readings. So... Ambulatory monitoring is better, but it's less practical. So 24 hours of blood pressures, they take them all you know, very frequently during the day, a little bit less frequently uh, at night, and more expensive, significantly more expensive. So the 2000, uh, the 2021 update, so the current one, the one that just came out, really doubles down on the inadequacy of office blood pressure readings for making a, an accurate diagnosis of hypertension. So, this, uh, the, the article, the, the, the evidence summary that was a systematic review and a meta analysis, 20 studies found that office readings had a false positive rate between zero and 30%, and a false negative rate between eight and 100%. Uh, which, right, even that range is astonishing. Sensitivity and specificity uh, varied, but maxed out at about 50 and 91. So uh, that's, uh, you know, again, not spectacular for a disease that has consequences both of overtreatment and undertreatment. Um, Repeating the office blood pressure, which tends to be our go-to response uh, to an abnormal blood pressure, did not help, um, did not make these numbers much better. So that had a false positive and a false negative rate range uh, between 10 and 15 and 65%. So Diagnostically, not getting us a lot uh, farther along. So, some uh, a reasonable recommendation is sending the patient home with a with a blood pressure cuff, uh, asking them to take their blood pressure twice a day between uh, for between three and seven days. They found that that your your gains maxed out at about five days. Uh, Gave you false positive rates between twenty two and fifty percent, false negative rates between three sorry seven and twenty four percent. Uh sensitivities uh 84%, specificity about 60%. Uh they looked at some limited evidence looking at patients taking their own blood pressures in the office. That was a, a disaster. Don't do that. And it an abbreviated a six hour ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, it's it's pretty much twenty-four hours or nothing. So the upshot of all of this, single office readings, even when done well, so they had the patients, you know, rest for five minutes, they had them check it multiple times, uh, they averaged, you know, five or nine readings, um, are unreliable for the diagnosis of hypertension. Repeated office readings um, are also unreliable. Uh, Find a way to confirm that diagnosis out of the office, uh, either sending the patient home with a cuff and asking them to, to check it a couple times a day. For for up to five days, uh, or twenty four hour ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, and that's the uh, that's the the latest.
0: All right. Yeah. So, thank you, Kate. Uh, we, the, the, go ahead, Henry.
3: Yeah, yeah. So this this ought to be a practice changer for clinicians. Uh, Re-engineer your practice. Whether it'll change policy, all of the quality metrics that are based on office blood pressure readings probably ought to be completely thrown out, ignored. Or I'm not recommending fraud, but you know, make sure that somehow you incorporate in your documentation those ambulatory blood pressure readings or the um, the home blood pressure readings. And the thing that I like I'm just going to step back and reflect about the task force. One of the things that I like is that it doesn't just throw out a, a recommendation and then sit back and relax. It looks for fresh data, it's got they've got a timeline and when they do their updates, they take a fresh look at all of the data and regenerate a whole new set of syntheses and recommendations based on that. They don't let the the past be their prologue.
2: It well, seems clear think, to me. Yeah. That treatment of hypertension is going to be or going to continue to evolve. Uh, this is quite interesting. That as we we're trying to avoid labeling people with hypertension that don't really have it, but there is the flip side of this coin too, based on the specificities and sensitivities that you quote, and that is this idea of masked hypertension, where people's blood pressures are normal in the office but they're not normal at home. Uh, A recent study that we may present in the next month shows that there's a fair number of people who have blood pressure spikes at night, and whether uh, treating them results in better outcomes, in fact, we really don't know yet. So there's still quite a bit more for us to know about diagnosis and treatment of hypertension.
0: Agreed. And I think, did they address the issue of automated blood pressure versus manual blood pressure measurements in the office, Kate?
1: Uh, not, they said that there's not a lot of evidence about that, uh, or, or not specifically, at least in this evidence summary. Although mm-hmm. other things that I've read about that uh, basically say, stop doing manual blood pressures, um, that the automated, mm-hmm. uh, you know, cuffs are are better. Um, mm-hmm. And it, to some extent, that makes sense, right? It's difficult to to mask A medical assistant or to mask a provider. Um, If you think that patient, you know, if the patient's chart says history of hypertension, um, that you're automatically led down, you know, a certain path, whereas a a cuff, not so much. You have to have a good machine. You have to have well trained staff, you know, no matter which route you go. But um, other other meta analyses suggest um, the automated cuffs are the way to go.
0: Great. Good advice. Thank you. Um, Henry, we're going to, we are going to hear about vitamin D during this podcast. Excellent.
3: Yeah, Kate, Kate you, you, you sort of primed the pump a little bit here by teasing us about some upcoming vitamin D studies. And John, I know this is a, an area of interest for you. So this poem asks the question, does dietary supplementation with vitamin D plus or minus fish oil reduce the risk of atrial fibrillation in adults? This was by Albert and colleagues in JAMA, the March 16th issue. So they took nearly 26,000 older Americans, defined as men over 50 or women over 55, they had to have no previous evidence of cardiovascular disease, no prior cancers, or history of atrial fibrillation. They went into this two-by-two factorial design where patients were randomized to receive either vitamin D plus fish oil, vitamin D plus placebo, fish oil plus placebo, or double placebo, just over percent 6,000 in each group. They had a three-month placebo run-in period, which normally we'd think would bias the data in favor of those patients who are highly adherent, may not be reflective in the real world, but stay tuned for what they found. Um, At baseline, they found that less than half of um, the individuals in each of the four groups consumed less than 800 units of vitamin D daily. And on average, each of the groups, um, they averaged about one and a half servings of fish each week. So they had very high rate of follow-up, 96% for a median of five years. That's a lot of follow-up for a long time period in the United States. And what did they find? Well, using the most rigorous analyses, they could find no differences in the rates of new onset atrial fibrillation. They did some subgroup analyses and found no difference among those who were vitamin D deficient, as defined by levels less than 20 nanograms per uh, milliliter, or any difference based on weekly fish consumption. And the study was big enough to be able to detect uh, clinically meaningful differences in the rates of atrial fibrillation. So we've seen multiple observational studies that have linked low blood levels of vitamin D and low levels of um, marine-based omega fatty-3 intake to an increased risk of atrial fibrillation, and any, as well as anything else you might care to name. But in randomized trials, we've not seen any um, consistent data that there's a benefit to supplementing vitamin D or with fish oil.
0: Mark? Yeah, that's interesting. and. I mean, it's kind of a specific, narrow outcome they were looking at, which is risk of AFib for a study of this size. Hopefully, they looked at a lot of other outcomes like cancer and dementia and heart disease and stroke to see if there were impacts on those as well. But huge, impressive trial. And um, at least we know what what at least one thing that these uh, vitamin D and the omega-3 oils don't do. Kate?
1: Yeah, I mean... It's the big paradox of vitamin D, right? That that a low level is associated with so many things, but replacing that vitamin D just does not seem to reduce the risk of whatever the the bad outcome or the bad the bad association was. So we're either gonna use it, you know, in the future as the the most amazing case study of a confounder, or we're eventually gonna find the subgroup where it matters. Uh, you know, where we're replacing that vitamin D matters. Um, and I kind of can't wait to find out which of those it is. Um, or you know what the what the actual answer is, but we have a lot of of science um, so far. You know, sort of saying it, we have not yet found the the place where vitamin D replacement matters.
0: John, I got to let you have the last word here. here the vitamin D. <laughs> yes, as vitamin D. We're, st-
2: <laughs> we're still looking for the holy grail. That's for sure. And by the way, I'm quite sure that this is also the same study that showed no association between either vitamin D and fish oil and any cardiovascular or cancer bad outcome. So so that's they did look at many outcomes, Mark. This is a sub-study. Okay.
0: I just forgot that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And um, all right, well, we're going to move on. And uh, John, you're up next and you're going to tell us about uh, Wheezy Kids.
2: Yes, this is a nice little study about Wheezy Kids that was published in the archives of disabled children in 2021, starting on page 339 uh, by Wallace and Sinclair. And they wanted to examine whether prednisone, prednisolone in this case, improves the outcome in preschool kids who have acute wheezing. This study is the Wheeze and Steroids in Preschoolers, the WASP study, and they recruited about 500 kids ages two to five who presented in New Zealand to one of three emergency departments. The age distribution, by the way, excludes infants and toddlers, early toddlers, that is with bronchiolitis, which we already know is not responsive to steroids. So in the emergency department, they treated these wheezy kids with inhaled salbutamol using a spacer device at 20-minute intervals, and then as-needed bronchodilators after that. They randomized the children then to receive either oral prednisolone at 2 mg per kg up to a maximum dose of 40 milligrams, or placebo, and they gave the treatment for 3 days, then followed up on the kids for a total of 7 days. The two groups were comparable at baseline, and the authors reported 97% follow-up. That's great. The average respiratory distress symptom score at baseline was 5.7 in each group on a 12-point scale. And using intention-to-treat analysis, which is the good, good analysis, the authors report no differences in the change in the symptom score at 24 hours. It was minus 5.7 for the prednisone-treated versus 4.7 for the placebo-treated kids, nearly identical. So no change in symptoms. Now, here's the twist, though. Here's the uh, ironic thing is that the steroid-treated children, despite this being double-blinded, now remember that, had fewer hospitalizations than the placebo group at about 24% versus 31%, so a 7% absolute difference Number needed to treat to prevent one hospital admission then was 13, which is, is not bad, not bad at all. Regardless of the treatment, most children had their symptoms resolved within 24 hours. So these, these kids must have, I guess, presented late in their illness because within 24 hours, you can see they were much better and nearly 100% had fully recovered at seven days so what what to do about this? I mean, you're giving steroids to 13 kids to prevent one hospitalization. What do you think Kate? Should should we be doing this for wheezy kids in the ED? Yeah,
1: I feel a little skeptical honestly. So the mm-hmm. you know, the hospitalization outcome was right at that, you know, statistical significance level. I agree that that, you know, that could certainly be clinically meaningful. Um, that seven percent absolute difference, but I I do kind of question it because their their wheezing scores were so much improved from their baseline mm-hmm. that I I mm-hmm. do wonder if this study were repeated if we would still see that that change in in hospitalization outcomes also. So you know you you kind of want to see all of those going consistently in the same direction. And so since they were since they were improved in their wheezing, why were there fewer hospitalizations? Um, mm-hmm. You know they they were better. Everybody was better. Um, so I, I feel a little skeptical still. I, I feel like uh, this is something where in order for it to actually change practice, you you would need to see a huge difference um, because people are going to keep giving steroids for wheezing kids um, until we've got, you know, either some real strong evidence of harm or some, you know, real strong evidence of, of equivalence. Mm-hmm. Henry,
2: thoughts?
3: Yeah, I agree with Kate that I think this probably warrants some replication. Uh, This was a poem that I uh, wrote, and the original paper, in my mind, was sort of an example of – How I think researchers sometimes ignored the clinically important endpoints. This was presented as a negative study based purely on the PRAM score, which is not a symptom score. It's based on clinical findings and whether or not those findings correlate to whether the, the patient says they feel better or the clinically meaningful endpoints, such as hospitalization and the like, remains to be seen one could argue, as Kate has, is that maybe um, if those seven-day outcomes were all the same f- across all of the groups, whether or not these hospitalizations were soft and not n- medically
2: necessary. Mm-hmm. Thank you for yeah, the correction think, on the PRAM score, Henry.
0: Yeah, more work to be done here for sure. And I, I share Kate's skepticism about uh, this And it would only take a couple more hospitalizations in one group and a couple fewer in another group or even one more and one fewer for it to become uh, non-significant, at least statistically. So I think you have got to keep that in mind. All right, we're going to finish up here. We've got um, John's going to answer the quiz question for us.
2: Here's the question again, which of the following treatments are effective for chronic low back pain? We had exercise, massage, yoga, acupuncture, spinal manipulation, and probably most of you answered all of the above, which uh, I didn't list because all of you would have chosen the correct answer. So all of these are effective. And this came from an incredibly thorough review from the Evidence-Based Practice Center in Portland, Oregon, which by the way, is a great uh, center. Uh, The research team included 233 studies in a review of non-pharmacologic management for chronic pain. The types of pain they included were chronic low back pain, chronic neck pain, hip osteoarthritis, knee osteoarthritis, fibromyalgia, and chronic tension headache. Now, for chronic back pain of six months duration or longer, all of these modalities brought some relief, as did low-level laser therapy and rehab, which were somewhat effective. But, you know, Henry told me I could only list five options in the quiz. So that's why I couldn't list all seven of them. So sorry about that. You should check out this hey, report, rules are though. Rules. It's really excellent. <laughs> <laughs> it's really excellent. And uh, you can see the results then of treatment of those other painful conditions as well. Really good. Really good. We'll include the reference on the handout, which you can get at the IAFP
0: website. Great. And I think I wrote that one up as a poem as well. That'll be in an upcoming uh, Essential Evidence uh, feed. If you subscribe to Essential Evidence Plus, you can get the full poem. So uh, thanks, everyone, for listening today. Um, Here, again, is where you can get CME credit. Go to iafp.com and click on the online IFP education webpage. Uh, The IFP uh, is accredited by the ACCME to provide CME for physicians. They designate this podcast for 0.5 AMA Category 1 credits. They adhere to the conflict of interest policy of the ACCME and the AMA. You can read the complete disclosure on the IFP website. I'm sure you're all going to rush over there and read that complete disclosure Mm -hmm. right away. It's fascinating. I hope you all enjoyed today's discussion. Please tell your friends. We'll talk to you soon with more primary care updates.